0: Uh, Christ in His fullness is the antidote to error. Realize this morning that we're not going to be able to even get into everything in this section. We're only going to get through verse 13. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold off in all of our applications for this section of Colossians until the next two times we get together. Okay, does that make sense? So this time, we're going to get into a couple of other theological areas that kind of spin off of this section of Scripture. But the important thing that I want you to see is what Paul is laying before us is the antidote to the error that the Colossians were engaged in, namely the invoking of angels and thinking that they had to have the aid of spiritual beings. Paul is going to destroy that notion by showing the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And we've seen that over and over and over. But he's starting to begin his crescendo argument, okay, And it really ends, I think, in my opinion, in verse 28, right in that area there of Colossians 2. So with that, let's get started into the text itself. And what we're going to see in this first section is there's really a dilemma. It's an either or. And what I'm going to show you is this is an either or, not just for then in the day of the Colossians, but for all time. Either we're going to be governed by what Christ says, or it's the stoichi of the world either we have salvation through Christ alone or we are in the realm of Satan and his minion. It's that simple. Let me show you how Paul derives at this. Colossians 2.80 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Now, I actually wrote this word down. for Notice it says, Take you captive. It's lagogeo, and it literally means to be taken away in plunder. By the way, this is what's called a hapax legomena. It's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. Okay, But from the way it's used in elsewhere in the culture of the day, it was used as a term to refer to when, like, for instance, a ship would be captured and the booty and the spoil would be taken off. So Paul is warning the Colossians, and by extension you and I, not to be carried off like plunder. And who would be doing the plundering? Well, as you're going to see, it would be the stoichia, the demons, okay, and ultimately Satan himself. Now, what I want to do is talk about and define again what in fact the philosophy was. Remember, the philosophy was what we had defined the first time we got together and talked about Colossians. And I just want to give you a little review. There were three elements that we had to define throughout the book of Colossians in order to define what the philosophy was. In other words, what is it that Paul was fighting against? That is the philosophy. And remember, philosophy literally means love knowledge, right? So this is, in a sense, it's just what knowledge was being exalted against Christ. And so let's go through it again. This is a little bit of review. And the first thing we have to define is what were the stoichia. And remember, the options that we had for stoichia were The stoichia could have been, for instance, the letters of an alphabet, the elementary things, that sort of idea, ABCs. It could have been the physical elements that comprise the earth, perhaps the planet and the stars. But as you're going to see in context, and this man named Clinton Arnold proves in his book, The Syncretism of the Colossian Heresy, it is actually the stoichia, they are demons. They are personal demons who are opposed to the things of God who want to steal salvation from human beings and lead, even if it was possible, Christ-elect astray. And so let me, I'll um, give you some actually ammunition to show you how stoichi is used elsewhere. Who had the Galatians 4, 3, and 9 passage? Oh, that was you, Robert. Listen, this is stoichi. Stoichi is only used four times in the entire New Testament. Twice in Galatians, twice in Colossians. And what what you're going to hear when Robert reads is that it's used... Exactly the same in Galatians chapter 4. The term is used synonymously. Galatians 4, verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Great. So those elemental things, they are the stoichia. So in, in Galatians, what Paul is refuting is this idea that once you were saved, you had to somehow go back to the Old Covenant and either stay kosher or engage in circumcision. And what Paul was laying out was that if you go back to the Old Covenant, you're now back under the stoichia. Okay? Why? Because you can't fulfill the law anyway. Okay? Okay? So if, if you leave the only means of salvation, that is faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, you're under the stoichia. And it's the same thing, or I should say Paul uses it the same way here in Colossians 2. Okay? Now, the other thing we had to define, if you recall, was this term. <laughs> by the way, I can't get Greek font and I can't transliterate, so I'm, I'm trying to use, uh, what do you call it? Uh, ph- Phonetics, thank you. To try to show you how you would say this, it would be imbatuon. It's actually a participle. And if you recall, the debate is how to translate this participle out of Colossians 2.18. In fact, let me read Colossians 2.18 with you to show you how it's rendered in uh, the New American Standard Bible. And it, I think it'll help us understand what the debate is about a little bit. So, Colossians 2, verse 18. He says, uh, Paul writes, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Now, here comes the term in taking his stand on visions he has seen. Okay, and then we'll just stop there. So the issue was, is what exactly does in does it mean that they are taking a stand on things that they had come to apart from Christ And I think there's an element of truth to the way the NASB translates it. But Clinton Ardell makes a good case that it should be literally rendered. They had entered into the things that they had seen. Now, why is that important? Because in Colossae and the surrounding area, there was a mystery rite. And what these people were engaging in was the second portion of this mystery initiation rite where they would enter into a visionary experience, and they would actually come into contact, at least in their own minds, now who knows, they would come into contact with these angels that were to protect them from the stoichia. Okay, are you with me? And you, can you imagine how powerful an experience that would be? So what Paul is going to have to do is to try to say, listen, you may have had that experience, but it wasn't a good thing, <laughs> okay? It was false. And so now, do you remember Bob has talked numerous times uh, from the book of Hebrews about how we are required to believe in an invisible Savior for now who is seated at the right hand of God who we can't see. But yet we're to believe the Word of God and that's who we're to trust in. But you see how difficult it is for human beings to trust in what's unseen and how much easier it is to trust in an experience or what is seen. And so Paul has to totally refute the idea that it matters what experience they had does that make sense so this phrase then in Batum literally means the experience they entered into while they had this vision in this initiation rite, and this would have been an experience that a lot of these Colossian Christians would have had in the back of their mind and it would have been tempting even after coming to Christ that they would want to say well I haven't had an experience lately and you remember back when we were invoking angels Wow, that was powerful, right? And I imagine it may be difficult today for those who perhaps are coming out of the emerging church and they're having experiences too, aren't they? And now they're told that they have to leave that and to trust in something they can't see or someone they can't see, namely Christ alone. Okay, now the other thing we had to define was the worship of angels. And the debate surrounded upon whether this is an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Now, what's the difference? Well, If it's a subjective genitive, then, in fact, the angels are worshiping, okay? And then, so, in other words, some scholars believe that the Jews wanted to enter into the realm of the angels with them and worship God. But the context, I think we can actually prove that it should be taken as an objective genitive. In fact, in all of the writings in antiquity and typically in the New Testament, This type of construction should be rendered as an objective genitive. We don't have time to get into all that. But the point is, it wasn't that the angels were worshipping and that these people wanted to join with them, but rather they were worshipping the angels. And that's where it became such a problem. So, again, let's put it all together. The stoichia are demons. And here's the deal. There are what what are called astral deacons. (laughs) I know. Don't, don't blame me. I'm only the messenger, okay? <laughs> so there are astral deacons, and this comes from, comes from Persia, by the way, all right? And there's 36 of them, and they govern every 10 degrees of the, the sphere of the earth, if you will, okay? And then they are in charge, in fact, of the sub-angels or the sub-demons, if you will. So the idea is these people believed that you, they had to invoke the help of angels to protect them from the stoichia because they're the ones who controlled fate. If you don't want a bad crop, if you want a good marriage, if you want things to go along in your life splendidly, you need protection from the stoichia. That's what they were afraid of. So it was very magically based. The Mbatuon, okay, again, is the experience where they entered in where they believed they actually met with an angel and therefore now garnered protection. Okay. And so Paul had to say, no, no, that was, that's hogwash. You know, let's just make it simple. That's not true. That's not valid. You're actually under the stoichia when you're doing that. And then finally, number three, it wasn't that they wanted to worship with the angels, but they were worshiping the angels. Why? Because they protected them from the stoichia. Okay? Listen to what Clinton Arnold actually says. And this is on page 173 of his book. Let me just read this. I think it's interesting. He says, in summary... One may safely conclude that in the context of magic and astrology, even in Jewish and early Christian circles, the term stoichia was indeed used of personalized spiritual forces that have significant influence over the affairs of day-to-day existence. They are not only involved in the unfolding of fate, but may be the functionaries of a magical charm or bring such evils as sickness, fevers, chills, croup. (laughs) I didn't know they had been croup back then. Kidney pain, heart disease, jealousies, squabbles. Furthermore, these traditions, including the demonic use of stoichia, reach into the first century A.D. and even earlier. So the point is, it was the day-to-day activities that these people believed they needed help in. And that brings me to my next slide. Let me show you another passage. And I think this defines exactly What the Colossian heresy was? Again, this is Clinton Arnold. He says it appears that the practice of invoking angels at Colossae does not have so much to do with matters of ultimate spiritual significance as it does with the issues of day-to-day life. As with the veneration of angels in Judaism, of magic and incantations, the Colossians' practice involved a diminution of one's relationship. By the way, that just means uh, uh, making it small of one's relationship to Yahweh and now Christ in favor of a manipulative relationship with His angels, the greater implication is with Christology where it appears that Christ is either neglected in favor of calling upon angels or is regarded on the same level as angels. And wouldn't that be a problem? So again... Think about this, friends. remember in second Corinthians eleven four the warning is Paul is concerned that they would have another Christ. If the Christ that someone believes in is not completely sufficient and therefore resulting in the belief that you need nothing else, then that 's not the true Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, if, if the Christ that you believe in isn 't sufficient so that you need to invoke angels, then you don't understand who Christ is. And that's why Paul has been belaboring who is this magnificent Christ. That's his whole point. And so, let me go back to verse 8 again. I'm going to just show some other things. That's why Paul is belaboring who Christ is. So, now the other thing I want to do is I want to look at, um, notice it says, do you see where it says according? The deception so they're believing in the philosophy an empty deception. In other words, it has no um, it appears on the outset that it's very wise, but it's actually empty. It's completely worthless. It's false.? Okay, There's nothing true about invoking angels to have protection from the Stoichia. In fact, it's a scheme, and the stoichia are trying to actually trick people into actually being under their authority. It's a complete scheme, it's empty. But notice what Paul is saying is that the deception is according to, to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, this phrase here would actually be rendered this way. It literally states and not according to Christ. So it's according to the traditions of man. It's according to the Stoicia, and not according to Christ. And so we have this very divergent view. I mean, it's either one way or the other. And I think it's a good, powerful application for us today the knowledge we base our lives. And the reason why I put it that way is because, remember, the Colossians were invoking the help of the angels not just always for ultimate salvation, but in the day-to-day manners of life. In other words, the day-to-day manners of life that you go through also reflect in what you're believing. If I have to put a statue of Mary in the ground in order to sell my house, right, do I understand who Christ is? Right? Isn't that coming underneath the stoichia? Isn't that the same thing? If I have to put a and I'm sorry to I'm not I'm just picking these off the top of my head, if I have to put a cutout of Mary and hang it from my mirror, am I trusting in Christ? Or am I engaging in putting myself under the stoichia? You see, and so it's it's either or. The knowledge we base our lives on is either from the stoichia or from Christ. There is no in between. And what's ironic is I remember in my orientation lecture there was a man named uh, Doug Paget whom Bob debated and, um, in my opinion, destroyed his arguments, but we'll leave that aside. I won't be the judge. <laughs> but at any rate, this Doug Paget said that you can't have either or. We have to stop binary reductionism now. And they don't like binary reductionism. And what's interesting is if there's anyone who is engaging at putting people under the stoichia, it's the emerging church. And they have failed to see the implications of Colossians 2 to their own detriment. Okay, Friends, there is binary reduction in the Bible. We have either the sheep or the goats, either saved or you're not. You're either in the kingdom of Satan, or I should say in the darkness of Satan and in his minion, or you're brought to the beloved kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's only two realms. There's this age and there's the age to come. That's how Paul understands things to be. um, Think about last week we talked about Proverbs. You're either on the road to perdition, you're acting like the youth in foolishness, or you're like the wise on your way to salvation because you understand the Scriptures and trust in Messiah. So there's only two options. And again, the world doesn't like only two options. They try to come up with a third option that's not valid. Okay, now let's move on to verse 9, and we're going to see that Jesus is God. Uh, 9 through 10 Paul writes he says for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that there is a noun that's being used here the fullness of deity it is theates not theates okay now why is that important well Larry may tell you that he, in his debate with Jehovah Witnesses, they like to try to claim. Jehovah Witnesses, remember, they don't believe that Jesus is God. And so they will take Colossians 2 9 and they will translate it like this. They will say, For in him all the quality of the divine dwells. So it's the idea that there's quality there. He's God like, but he's really not God. Are you with me? But that would be the translation of the second word that I have there. It's an adjective but that's not what's here. That's not the term that's used here. It's the noun, and it literally means divine. So here it's a clear declaration that this Christ is God. You can't get around it. And the only way you can try to get around it is if you start distorting what it actually says. Okay. The other thing I want to point out is notice it's in Him. So we see that it is in Christ that we have been made complete. Now, Let me point something out here. You see up here it says fullness? It's pleroma. Paul is using a play on words. He literally is saying this For in him you have all the pleroma, the fullness, I'm sorry, all the fullness of deity, the pleroma dwells in bodily form, and in him you have all the fullness. Okay? There's another, he actually uses fullness twice. So because Christ, you have all the fullness of deity. You need nothing else. And you have now all the fullness. In other words, you don't need those angels, do you? You don't need to put the statue of Mary in the ground to sell your house. Christ will take care of that. He's sovereign in His providence. He'll take care of you, right? You don't need to put the statue of Mary on your visor, whatever, to protect you from oncoming traffic, right? So at any rate, the whole point is there's this play in words. Play aroma. Christ is every fullness, every aspect of deity is in Him. And then we have here... It's actually a perfect participle. And by the way, let me just point out something. It's kind of, even in my um, attempts to put it in English, notice there's a pep. That's actually what's called reduplication. So it's taking the first terms here, basically, and it's reduplicating it. That's how we know it's in the perfect tense in Greek. So if you have reduplication, you know it's in the perfect tense. Now, why is it important that it's in the perfect tense? I know grammar isn't everybody's favorite, but remember, perfect tense means something that happened in the past, It was perfectly completed, hence the term perfect, and its result is still with us today. So, why that's so important to us in our Christian lives is God did this. He made us full, perfect, lacking nothing, and it was in the past, it was perfectly completed, and it will always be with us, never to lose it. That's another case that you could bring up to prove the eternal security of a believer. There's nothing lacking forever, He has saved us to the utmost. We cannot possibly need anything more or lose our salvation. That's the importance of grammar. So anyway, I'm excited about it. So I don't care if you don't like grammar. (laughs) Oh, I do care. Okay, upside what's going backwards for some reason. Okay, so we have that. Now, we'll go into, yeah, number three here. God's grace and power are bestowed upon those in Christ. Oh, the reason why I highlighted that, sometimes I get carried away with my PowerPoints as you probably can tell. And I have this circle here. And the only thing I wanted to point out there is, again, it's a date of. It's in Him, in Christ. And remember the idea of spheres? You're either in the sphere of the stoichia under Satan or you're in the sphere of the beloved Son in Christ. That's the idea. We are now in the sphere of Christ. We're living in His His neighborhood. It's His household. That's the idea. And that's, again, a, the idea of date of of location is kind of the idea okay and then he is the head oh by the way this is an important concept too this head term kephale in the culture of the day that the colossians found themselves in the term head mean or meant you ruled over everything okay whether it be the kingdom whether whatever um denomination in other words if you were Head of the Elks Club, or I don't know. You were the head of it. You were, the, you were in charge of the whole shooting match. That's the whole point. And so this term is actually a very technical term for the leader of all things. And in this case, it would be over the entire creation. He is the head over all things, over all rule and authority, which in fact would imply the Stoichia. So the head here then, Jesus rules over all the Stoichia. They answer to him, and so does everything else under creation. OK, so, again, it's just majestic. That's why, um, in fact, we should trust in Christ and we don't have to worry about the stoic. Yet. Now, I want to go into notice I called it an excursus. What that really means is I want to go into a bunny trail and I'm labeling it with a big technical term to make it sound like we're doing something important. <laughs> OK, but, but, but bear with me. I think this is important. I want to get into this idea of the hypostatic union. And that has to do with who Christ is because when it says that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, we have to consider what does that mean to be fully God and fully human, okay? And I want to deal with a passage that's often been abused, I think, by, um, it typically started with German theologians in the 1800s, and that is the Philippians 2 passage where they claim that Jesus actually emptied himself of divine attributes. It's called the Kenosis theory. Okay? So in other words, Jesus, when he became flesh, okay, the Son becomes flesh in the incarnation, he got rid of some of his divine attributes. And their proof text of that would be Philippians two, five through eight. Okay, now remember Colossians two nine says the fullness of deity. Not lacking nothing dwells within Christ. Okay, so now it seemingly there's a discrepancy between what Colossians 2.9 is saying and what these German theologians are claiming that Philippians 2 is saying. Now, let me read and show you where they're getting this idea. Philippians 2.5-8 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, there's the term kenosis, he emptied himself, Taking the form of a bond servant, being made—I'm sorry, that should be a D there—being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, for the first eighteen hundred years of the church, this term kenosis, no theologian believed that it indicated that Christ divulged or got rid of any of his Divine attributes. It was only in the 1800s that German theologians started to try to claim that Jesus left some of his divine attributes when he became a man. Okay? And they're getting at it from that term emptied. But what I want you to see that Philippians 2 is all about, and you could probably pull up uh, Carl if he's here, because he's actually studying this passage, or the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, the passage is all about Paul asking his fellow Christians to humble themselves. Okay, in fact, let me read verse three, just so you understand what I'm getting at here. Turn, if you will, to Philippians two, three. And I'm just going to start there for the sake of time. Paul says this He says, Do not I'm sorry, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. See, what I'm claiming is this passage is about humility. Okay, and so the idea when Christ emptied himself, it's not that he emptied himself of his divine attributes, but rather he humbled himself. Okay, so let me just point this out. Notice it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was what? Which is also in Christ Jesus. So this is about attitude. It's not about. Now, now let me ask you this. Think about this. If I said, hey, be humble, okay? If you humbled yourself, would that mean that you're less than human? That you somehow had to get rid of some of your human attributes? Of course not. You're still fully human. It's the way you act. You're now humbling yourself. That's the point. So look at the end of the verse. It says, uh, verse 8 here, it says, He did this by... He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross... So the idea of this emptying has nothing to do with him getting rid of his divine attributes, but rather, even though he was fully divine, he didn't use them always to his own advantage. And rather, he humbled himself and put himself in the subjection of even evil men so that he could provide atonement. That's what the passage is clearly saying. Let me just give you a little wrap up here then. Jesus did not divest himself of divine attributes, but of the prerogative to always use them. That's the distinction. Let me um, show you another couple links here. Think about this Jesus Christ, fully human, okay, and fully divine at the hypostatic union. And he, by the way, according to Chalcedon 451, and according to the scriptures, he'll always be that way. He's always going to be forever the God man 100% God, 100% man simultaneously. Okay? Now, there's a heresy called Nestorianism, and that actually denied the union of the natures. But there's another one called Eutychianism, and that actually denied the distinction of the natures. Okay, so remember, there's a distinction between the natures, but yet there's unity. In other words, it's in Christ, in one person, we have full deity and we have full humanity. And one of my favorite texts to show you this, or to prove it to myself, and the one that I love deeply because it's meant a lot to actually an uncle of mine who was dying of cancer, is Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, we have remember there the disciples in Christ they are on the Sea of Galilee. And you see the humanity of Christ because, after all, he's in the back of the boat and he's asleep. It says in Matthew 8 24, Jesus himself was asleep. Now, does God get tired? Well, Jesus did. His human side did. He was genuinely tired, and he was asleep in the back of the boat. Yet just three just a couple of verses later when the disciples cry out, Lord, don't you care? Don't you see that we're perishing? He says, peace be still. And the disciples react this way. They say, even the winds and the seas obey Him. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey Him? And so here you have Christ and His humanity. He's asleep. He's tired. He's in the back of the boat. But yet, in an instant, He can stand up and say, peace be still. And even the winds and the seas obey Him. And so we see this idea of the hypostatic union at play in this passage. So did Jesus devoid himself of any of his deity, of his divine omnipotence? No. He pulled it out right here, didn't he? Let's see another passage, Matthew twenty four thirty six. Christ is answering the time of his coming. And he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. But remember also, remember... Um, John 21, when Jesus is reinstituting Peter and he asks him three times, do you love me? And finally, Peter, the last time Christ asks, he says this. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So here we have the divine again. Jesus knows all things. And so how do we reconcile the idea that, well, he claimed, or he, I'm not saying he claimed, he didn't know the time of his coming, but yet he knows all things. And I think Gundry puts it best. He's a scholar who says this. He says, Theologically, we may say that just as Jesus did not exercise his omnipotence except to further the kingdom, uh, you know, and here's the reference his refusal to make stones into bread, so he did not exercise his omniscience except to further the kingdom. Again, what Jesus could have done because he was divine did not determine what he did do. As also a man, the incarnation did not, did not destroy divine potencies, but it did limit actualities. In other words, and by the way, this is the source there if you want to look at it. The idea then is Christ did not divulge any of his deity. He did not get rid of one scintilla of his divine attributes. Now, did he always act on his divine attributes? Did he always take full advantage of them? No, he did not. And that's his prerogative as the son of man. That's how I think we reconcile it. Bob, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you want to add anything? Or is this fairly. Sorry, throw you on the spot. I <laughs> no, I appreciate you teaching us this. See, we need to. The reason we need to learn Christian doctrine, there's a lot of Christians that want to just sort of be simple minded. Sure. And they think that that's a safer way to go. But it really isn't. Right. Because false teachers will come and prey on Christians. Yeah. So what I want to do is thank you for teaching us Christian oh, doctrine. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to come to church and learn doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, oh, thanks, Bob. I, um, in fact, that's what attracted me to this church when I started coming. Uh, I thought, well, gosh, these guys actually are preaching the Bible and teaching doctrine. And this is what I'd like to be about. And so, I've, um, so anyway, I'm excited to be here. So anyway, now let's get into the next section of Scripture then. And we're going to see this next section talk about the circumcision made without hands. In verses 11 through 12 of Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, And in him, and I think again that's another date of a referent, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me talk a little bit about circumcision. And what I want to do is I want to just delve into, again, what circumcision is because I think it's important for us to get a handle on when Paul talks about circumcision, what is his understanding of it? What's the biblical concept in both the Old and the New Testament? Why? Because I think in my life, I know, I've often been confused about circumcision passages, okay? And so what I want to do is help you come to some realizations that I came to in my studies over the years and see if it helps you. First of all, I want to start in an odd place when dealing with circumcision. It's Genesis 1.27. The reason why I'm bringing this passage up is because mankind, Adam, Adam, that's where we get the term Adam, right? Adam, of course, is a person. He's also a male. But in one sense... Adam is also synonymous with male and female because male and female did God create man. That's the idea. So in a certain sense, now remember, we're not losing the distinction of a male and a female any more than we would lose the distinction of having one God and three persons. They're still distinct, but yet they're one. Do you see what I'm saying? And in fact, in Genesis 1.27, one of the reasons why God focuses in on men and women, notice For instance, in the rest of creation, God never talks about male and female uh, donkeys or cows or anything else. But when he comes to man, he denotes that they're male and female. And so somehow this plurality reflects his glory. Okay, why? Because he says, let us make them in our image. Now, there also is some play with the host of heaven, I think, involved with this too. But the idea is that male and female alone reflect to a certain degree, the image of God. Okay. Now, again, God is triune, and we only have two here. But yet, think about this. In the book of Revelation, we have the number 666. It's a trinity, right? But the number of perfection is seven, and it's short of perfection. And in a real sense, man and woman is two. It's not triune. But yet, we're not really God, are we? We're short of his perfection. But the idea is that the plurality somehow reflects the image of God. So the whole point I'm trying to make here is that man and woman make up Adam. They make up Adam. They make up man, mankind. That's the whole idea. Now, why that's significant is, is because when we get to the seed promise, notice in Genesis 3.15, it's the seed of the woman that will one day crush the serpent's head. And so women are going to be giving babies and babies and babies. And eventually, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, the Messiah will come. Now, you might ask, well, what's the role of the man? Here, the woman has to do all the hard part, right? Okay? Well, the man has to bear the sign that this will, in fact, happen. The seed promise, in a real sense, friends, is a remembering of this promise. It is a cutting of the male anatomy where the seed comes. And it is a constant reminder that one day, through Adam, through man and woman, Messiah is going to come. Okay? And he will, in fact, provide. Atonement, okay? Now, who had uh, Genesis 17, 7 through 11? Who had that one? Oh, okay. Pat's got that one.
1: Genesis 17, 7 through 11. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout all generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you.
0: Great. So the sign of the covenant is this circumcision. Now let me talk about a covenant real quick. In in Hebrew, the term for establishing a covenant is they would call cutting a covenant. Karath cut Barith, the covenant. You, so you cut a covenant. When you go back to Genesis 15, well, let's go back even further. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, they had sinned and, and um, they're, they're in big trouble, right? What happens but God provides them a covering and so He has to cut an animal. So we see this first foreshadowing of the cutting or of atonement. Okay? Well, then... God, in Genesis 15, he alone walks the blood path, right? And the animals are cut. And so there's this cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15. But remember, what's Abraham doing, or Abram at the time? He's sleeping, right? And so God unilaterally makes the promise as he walks the blood path. So now God will unilaterally bring about the promise of the Messiah, okay, and messianic salvation. And in fact, in Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed that. But as a sign to that will happen is Abraham will now be cut and all of his male children. So the female has to give birth and the male bears the sign of the cutting of the covenant. Okay? So the male is cut in the area where the seed will come and it symbolizes not only the idea that the seed will come, but when the seed comes, he himself will be cut. He will be the one who provides atonement. Are you with me? And we'll see that very uh, idea here present in Colossians 2. Okay? So then later on we see this idea of circumcision involves not only the cutting physically, but of the cutting of the heart because not only is messianic salvation coming through the cutting of the Messiah ultimately, but you and I have to be able to appropriate his atonement for us by faith. And the point is all people are born sinners dead in their trespasses. In fact, we'll see that idea present here in the next verse. Uh, Yeah, the next verse. So what we have to have is regeneration. In other words, the Holy Spirit enabling us to actually believe in this messianic atonement. And that's why circumcision involves also the cutting of the heart. And I'll show you that verse later. We'll we'll look at Jeremiah 4.4. So the circumcision, it's symbolizing two things. Messiah is going to come and he's going to be cut. And it's going to be throughout generations. One day Messiah comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. Okay, And then also, I have to have my heart cut or circumcised or changed so that I can believe in him. That's the idea that we see through circumcision. So again, let's get back to this text here. And I want to talk about this idea of the circumcision made without hands. Notice this term made with hands has to do with that which is constructed by man. And I want to look at a few of those passages. Leviticus, who is Leviticus 26.1? Oh, yeah, Mary Alice. So what you're going to see here is there's this di- the, the difference between made with hands and made without hands. One is of man, one is of God. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, the heart of stone is actually what's cut out give given a heart of flesh something like that. Exactly. Yep. In Ezekiel uh, 36, that's right, in Jeremiah 31. Yep. Yeah, so go ahead and read the Leviticus 26.1. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place
1: a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord
0: your God. Yeah, so they made with their own hands these images. So that's from man, okay? And then look at Acts 7.48. Who had that passage?
1: Acts 7.48. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says.
0: Yeah, so Stephen there is proving here the Sanhedrin, they're persecuting the Christians, and Stephen has to prove that no, Yahweh doesn't dwell, God does not dwell in a mere temple made by human hands. Okay? And so the place to find Messiah, the place to find salvation is at the Messiah's feet. It's not at the temple. The people who speak for God aren't the Sanhedrin, they're the apostles. That's what he's laying out there in Acts chapter 7. How about 1724?
1: Acts 17.24 The God
0: who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Yeah. Does not live in a temple made with human hands. And again, in Exodus 25.40, we have Moses is given the directions or the directions to build the tabernacle after the pattern of that which was shown to him indicating that He was making something in the, in the pattern of what already existed. Okay, now let me just pull up then what's made without hands. And that's constructed, of course, by God. And that's what's being described here. So this is a circumcision made without hands indicating that God has done it. Who had Ephesians
1: 2.11? Ephesians 2.11 Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands.
0: So there was the circumcision talked about at the very end there that was performed by human hands. So keep going then into Hebrews 9.11.
1: Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation.
0: Yeah, again, this idea... That's the creation, or the I should say the temple or the tabernacle that God has made alone. So what we see here, friends, is that this circumcision is from God. And so it's something far different than what we were doing all along as I'm talking about the Jews. And so what we have here then is, let me just point out some phrases here. Notice the circumcision is made without hands, and it's in the removal of the body of the flesh. Okay, now... There's been a lot of debate. What does it mean in the removal of the body of the flesh? And there's really been two interpretations of this over time. There's two views. The first one is this. The removal of the flesh is synonymous or is putting off the old nature and that we see this idea in Colossians 3.9. And it would be the people who hold to this idea would typically believe that baptism is synonymous with circumcision. So the idea then is this is something that you and I do. Um, God obviously enables us to do it, but the removal of the body of the flesh is the idea that we're putting off our old nature. okay? And we're putting off our old nature, and therefore we're no longer acting as if we were uncircumcised in our heart. That's kind of the idea. But what I'm going to show you is the context proves actually the second interpretation, and I'll, I'll show you why. The second option is this. The removal of the flesh is synonymous with Christ's death Namely, that he himself is being circumcised. So it's synonymous with his death. Okay. Now, let me give you the evidence of why I think this is a particularly appealing interpretation. This circumcision, again, would be that Christ has in fact died and he has cut off for the sake of his descendants, those who would trust in him. Notice that we have, it says, "...in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Okay, now thats if we take that as his death, so he's died. Now it talks about his burial, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through the faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Here we have the three aspects of the gospel that Paul alludes to, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 153 through four. Who had the first Corinthians 15 Yeah, Larry. Oh, sorry. I would give you mine, but then I couldn't get it on.
1: 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Yeah. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, died. according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures.
0: So that he, he died, he was raised on the third day. Remember, third day according to the Scriptures. What Scripture is that? Psalm 1610, the Holy One would not see decay. I think that's what's in mind, in Paul's mind. So the Holy One wouldn't see decay. Decay starts on the fourth day. Therefore, ergo, hence, the Messiah must be raised on the third day. Are you with me? And then, so yeah, So we have the point is we have the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's exactly what we see here. We have the circumcision of Christ. That's his death. Having been buried, the burial obviously, and then being raised with him through, now this is the mechanism, through faith, and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we have his death, burial, resurrection, and then the implication, that's applied to us by faith. That's applied to us by faith. It's through the mechanism of faith. And so that's how we are, in fact, saved. Okay, now let me show you again this idea of the need for regeneration. We'll get into verse 13, and this is as far as we'll be able to go. Uh, Paul continues, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, okay? When you are dead in your transgressions, again, this is a question that I ask my students who are teenagers. I say, what does it mean to be dead? What do dead men do? And they just they love chanting this out and yelling it real loud. They say, they stink it up because that's all <laughs> dead men can do. They rot, okay? The point is, is people who are dead cannot affect in any way their own salvation, can they? When I was a new Christian, I thought the picture of salvation was that men and women were drowning and they were in the water and that God came along in the helicopter and if you chose to grab on, He'd lift you out. But the picture of salvation is actually that men and women are dead. Their bodies are in the water already decaying. And He comes along and to those whom He chooses, He breathes life into. Okay? And... And so that's the picture of salvation. We have nothing to do with it. So the idea then is when you were dead in your transgressions, you remember the idea of sphere. Anytime you see in, sometimes it has to do with sphere. Sometimes it has to do with the means. But this, I think, is again sphere. The idea is you were dead in your transgressions. You were in that sphere. You were living in the neighborhood of death and you had nothing going for you. You were stinking up a rotting corpse and you could affect nothing. But then what did God do? Well, then it says, then God... It says, He made you alive together with Him. It's Aorist. He did it. God made you alive. What did you have to do with it? Nothing. I was just stinking it up. That's the idea. He made you alive. And so it's so beautiful. So let me show you where we see this idea of this need that God would make us alive. And again, this has to do with both spiritual and physical life at the end of the day. Jeremiah 4.4 four. 4. God says this, and He commands this of those of Judah. He says, circumcise your hearts to Yahweh and remove the foreskins of your heart. Why was He commanding that? Because they were the people that could not respond to Him. So here He is commanding that you circumcise your hearts, change to have a heart that is responsive to Me. Forsake your idolatry. And you know what? They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it, but He had the opportunity. God is perfectly just in commanding us to do that. It is a moral and a right thing that he commands his creation to do it. And the reason why we can't isn't his fault. It's our own. Okay? It's our own fault. So the idea he's commanding this. So that's why when we get to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it talks about how God would give them a new heart. God would have to do it. He would have to make them alive. And so, again, we see this need. For instance, Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six. moreover, I'm sorry, this isn't the need. This is the remedy to the need. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone. Remember, he goes on to say, I will give you a heart of flesh. Let me just say it again. The heart of flesh does not mean... Remember, we usually use the term flesh as sinful. That's not how it's used in this context. The heart of stone is one that cannot respond to God. A heart of flesh is one that is responsive to God. Okay. So the idea is God alone will give them the ability... To have a heart that's responsive to Him, namely faith and then later obedience. That's the idea. Okay? And then we see the same thing here in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord except what? Except by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He made you alive, He quickened you, He enabled you. That's the regeneration that we see in Titus 3, 5. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me, dunamis, can. Remember when you're in grade school and you say, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And they always say, I don't know, can you? (laughs) And you remember that? I was like, oh, oh, for crying out loud. We always fall for it, too. So you would say, may I go to the bathroom? And they would say, well, of course you can. the idea was they're trying to teach you the difference between the ability and permission. Okay, so when we get to John 644, it's not that we're looking for the permission to come to Christ. We're commanded to do so. But rather, we don't have the ability. Right. Okay, the ability. So that's the issue there. Okay, so what I want to do then is um, I want to just put our theology together real quickly. Oh, gosh, I'm getting late here. I'm sorry about this. I, um, sometimes I don't get a chance to really time these out. But let me just talk about something real quick. Talking about this idea of regeneration, let me put up Romans 2.28-29. through 29. And I want to make an application from this a little bit. And remember, I'm kind of going off track a little bit here on a bunny trail because we're going to pick up this passage in Colossians and I don't want to talk about its culmination until the end, okay? So Romans 2.28-29, through 29, Paul writes this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his phrase is not from men, but from God. Let me just explain this real quickly. What Replacement theologians latch onto this. And they say, Aha! Israel is spiritual, not physical. And so therefore, if you're really a Jew, you can be a Gentile and be a Jew, which this text is saying. But what they do is they make the misapplication of saying, Ergo, Israel has replaced the church. There's no longer a plan for Israel. It's all the church. And so sorry. Israel... I'm sorry, church replaces Israel. Yes, make sure I get this straight. The Israel replaces the church. That's what they're trying to claim. Are you with me? I'm sorry, I said it again. Wait, wait, say it. The church replaces Israel. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, all right, listen to these guys. (laughs) Don't listen to me. Okay, so the church replaces Israel. Okay, all right. But now, here's what I want to talk about. What I'm going to lay out before you is that, remember, regeneration is the act of God whereby he makes individuals and he enables them to believe in Messiah, okay? What I'm going to show you is that kingdom is going to be populated by men and women who are both Jews and Gentiles. So in that sense, a true Jew is one who is one inwardly, not outwardly. But the kingdom is coming to Israel. We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let me show you why. Romans 11:25 to 28 Paul says this, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The point is, friends, look at that they. That they is actually a term for the enemies of God. And that has to imply, Bob actually pointed this out to me, I think it's very insightful, and it proves that this is, in fact, Israel. Why? In other words, the debate is, who is the group that's being talked about here? There's two groups. There's the Gentiles, and there's the Jews. There's the natural olive branches, and those who are being grafted in. Well, the whole point is, is this they has to be referring to the Israelites, because would it make sense that the enemies... Of God are those who are believers that Paul is, re- is actually talking to? Yeah. If you're going to follow their rules you replace Israel with church. See how that works out? Uh, yeah. To say you know uh, the hardening has happened to the church that doesn't work, and so all the church will be saved. Well, that doesn't work. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it's bad thinking, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the whole point is that they must be the Israelites because Paul is talking to Gentile believers. How can Gentile believers in Christ be the enemies? That Paul is alluding to. Of course, that must be the they must be Israel. Why? Because he's talking to Gentile believers. How can Gentile believers in Jesus Christ be the enemies? Because that's how the replacement theologians would have you believe that passage to be interpreted. Okay? Because they have to make Israel, make sure I get this right, synonymous with the church. Okay, synonymous um, with both Jew and Gentile believers. So here's the point. Here's why I show you a graphic. Um, Before the time of the Gentiles, we had regeneration coming to Israelites and many Israelites were regenerated so that they could believe in Messiah and yet some a few Gentiles. During the time of the Gentiles, we have many Gentiles being regenerated so that they would trust in Messiah and yet a remnant of Jews, of Israelites. And then when God turns his attention again towards the Jewish nation, the majority of the people who will be regenerate will be Israelite believers, individuals but yet there will be still a few Gentiles. But the point is, all of the promises are coming to the kingdom of Israel. It will be a physical kingdom. And so you can't replace Israel with the church. Because yes, as you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been grafted in to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise in Romans 2 is that he regenerates uh, men and women, and it's those who are regenerate, that will, in fact, partake in the kingdom that is coming physically to Israel. Okay? Right. Kind of an interesting uh, tidbit on uh, circumcision. I have a book at home called Science in the Bible. Okay. And one of the things in there is on uh, circumcision. And the Jews were commanded by God not to circumcise until the eighth day. And, and the reason they do the eighth day is because science today has proven out that the uh, infant after being detached from the umbilical cord has not developed the white blood cell count to ward off infection and things like that so it's kind of an interesting thing again where uh, God's word proves out over time so. well said Brian and you know I've heard and I don't know if anybody could verify this but I've also heard the vitamin K uh, count that's somewhat responsible for blood clotting is also the highest of a human being's life on the 8th day and um, interestingly enough, that would correspond to this idea of circumcision too. So yeah, no no uh, surprise that God is sovereign over those things. Any other questions? I'm sorry to go so long. I didn't. Um, I should have cut it a couple short. You guys can come up to me afterwards and talk.